Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories Village Global. I'm here today with very special guest, Benita Roy. Bonnie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Bonnie, when people ask you to define yourself or when you think, uh, and these might be two different questions, when you think of your own identity in a way that you want to express yourself to to others or or to yourself, how do you you think about that? Who are you? Well, I have I have a lot of different kind of public personas. I, I'm kind of eclectic and I do a lot of different things. So you may, I, I show up as the person who does workshops with horses, for example. I teach a master's course in consciousness studies. I do organizational consulting. So if I had to kind of thread all those into uh, one definition, um, I would say that um, I like to call myself an insight guide, which is a kind of approach to teaching or coaching or training in which we're tr- trying to move from teaching knowledge and facts and explanations to having insights into the way we experience or perceive the world, even insights into the way we've told ourselves stories or explained things to ourselves in the past. Because to be an insight guide means that you are basically giving people people an insight, a sneak preview of a whole entirely different way of experiencing the world. So moving them from maybe a scientific materialist reductionist to a person who understands the role of the body and intuition, let's say. So that would be someone all of a sudden having an insight. So um, I like to try to meet people where they're at and in the process of working in any context, seeing if I can help them move to where they, as a person or an organism, wants to go. You know, everybody, it seems to me, everybody's kind of listing, listing from where they are to what Kaufman might call the, you know, the, the adjacent potential, right? So um, I noticed that in myself that that's kind of been consistent through a long period of my life. If you were to describe yourself sort of in third person or in the, uh, in the Wikipedia article of, of yourself and, and there was the sort of unique contributions or your unique insight portion, would it be to help people, you know, individually and, uh, you know, via institutions have more insights or, or be more insight based is like, do you think that's your unique insight, what you've you contributed or, or want to have contributed? Yeah. So to go meta on that, I would, I'd like to contribute the, this whole approach to pedagogy as insight training um, instead of how else you want to um, describe what we do. But where this comes from is that a long time ago, I read Jean Gebser and he explained how the current type of mind we have it's certain has a certain architecture, and it emerged around 3,000 years ago. And so we have reasons to believe, and Gebser predicted this, that new minds would evolve over time. And I started doing research and looking at what are the types of minds or writings or propositions or sciences 
that seem not to have the same architecture as the mental structure of consciousness. So to have an insight around the limitations of the current structure of consciousness, the current architecture of reasoning really is profound because it enables us to ask questions in a new way, to see the world in a different way. And uh, I believe we need a move like that, a big radical leap in insight to solve the problems that we don't seem to be able to solve. So that would be my contribution, that to have moved humanity from discovering more and more and more in the same way we've been looking at the world to actually shifting to asking new kinds of questions, developing new kinds of sciences, uh, reinventing what it means to think and reason entirely. So that 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 would be kind of the radical and, shift. And, but, but I want to get into that radical shift, but first I want to I want you to give some historical context for it. Why is the um, sort of you know the scientific worldview praised as more perhaps high status than the than maybe what you're, the intuitive or insight driven? worldview you know some people i think point to david hume with sort of the different facts versus values thing mm-hmm. uh book zen the art of motorcycle maintenance gets into this in, in different ways how do you see it okay so the key characteristic um of the mental con- structure of consciousness is that it it handles discrepancies or paradoxes or opposites and it makes a more complex synthetic proposition right so it it's all has to do with the, the structure of logic, which is like set theory. So the larger term at the top includes all its members. It's just an, a basic architecture of thought that emerged around uh, the age of Plato. And this kind of architecture of thought has been very helpful. It gave us the modern project and the modern enlightenment. Um, it was the kind of thinking that Kant uh, described, but everyone who goes through Western schooling thinks like this now. Um, the problem with this kind of thinking is like all structures of thought, they have their limitations. And we have made things so complex. So this whole process of dealing with um, discrepancies or paradoxes and then going to a next higher level complexity has created uh, what is called overmining. These very large hyper objects that we actually can't get at. We can't, they're not actionable type objects. We don't, the complexity has grown faster than our ability to manipulate or navigate them. So if you see this, this structure of consciousness inherently escalates complexity. So we have escalating everything, right? And so my my, my recent quest is how do we release the complexity of, of these things How do we get beneath some of this epistemic architecture and actually begin again to solve problems? And just to bring that down to a metaphor, it's like, because I use this in organizations, it's it's when when Ptolemy explained his system of epicycles of the planets moving around the earth, it had very good explanatory power because he finally could explain, explain why Uh, Planets like Mercury seem to go backwards in the night sky at certain times, right? So this was a very complex kind of system that took a long time to work out. But then Copernicus comes along, you know, it's a, a fake story. Copernicus comes along and says, well, why don't we just switch our view to the sun as the center of the solar system? 
And now all of a sudden, the explanation becomes much more elegant. It's not reduced complexity. It didn't reduce the complexity of what was, but being able to handle it or talk about it or reason with it became much less complicated, let's say, more elegantly complex. And if you think about it, at the time, we didn't fly out to outer space to see that the sun was the center of the solar system, right? We actually had to make up a virtual perspective that wasn't the center of the earth. We actually had to do something with our mind, create a perspective that was virtual because no one could actually see this from outer space and then recreate the model of the star of the solar system from there. So it's this notion of can we create a new virtual perspective from which we can reason? And what are the, what is the architecture or the the perspective that we're constantly locked in today, you could argue that being locked into this paradigm or this architecture of thought is why we don't seem to make progress on our our problems. And, and can you do this to just crystallize what is the, the current ar- architecture of thought? Okay, so there's a couple of features. The key feature is, again, when we deal with discrepancies, we tend to then um, explain them from a higher level perspective. We get more complex, right? So it's a model of hierarchical complexity. Our thinking gets more and more and more and more complex. So to explain climate problems, it's, it's, a, it's enormously complex the way we approach climate now. You know, there's millions of simulations and feedback loops and trophic cascades and stuff. So, and then the longer we study climate, the more complex it gets. It's almost like the epistemic challenge of just naming the thing is moving faster than our ability to do something about it. And people can say, well, that's, you know, you're going to say, well, that's because climate is complex. And I'm going to say, yes, but that's, it's complex because of a certain architecture of thought. And you can see people moving in a different direction from what I call this taking discrepancies and making a larger synthetic complex perspective is called uh, you know it's it's a synthetic move it's it, it synthesizes things into a larger kind of conglomerate and then works works on it from there so um, it's kind of hard to understand but it, it it really is that if you notice every time you can't solve a problem then you you push up the complexity of your orientation to it and we've been doing that for a long time it served us well until well, now we're facing the kinds of problems we're facing um, seem to not be addressed by that kind of reasoning process. I'm curious why it stopped serving us well. Was it, it was just too much information? We could only handle a certain level of complexity. And, and when the problem was handled, then it got, or like, what was the characteristic of when it doesn't serve us well versus when it did serve us well? Okay, yeah, so um, a lot of people have been looking at, like uh, Bob Keegan has talked about, wrote a book called In Over Our Heads, where the task demand in modern society is growing faster than our cognitive complexity to meet that. Why it's happening, you can describe it in two ways. One, the way I did, in the sense that just our our mode of reasoning is inadequate to the task. Um, Or you can say the actual types of problems that we're dealing with now are so complex that moving them up into 
a synthetic kind of understanding is not adequate to, to that. So can you give some examples, maybe on that climate one, or and I know it's hard, or maybe, maybe in another field yeah. where releasing complexity, maybe it's a synthetic move or another move would, would be a vast difference. I'm, I'm curious for, to, if we could paint a picture of how things would be different if we released instead of reduced complexity. Yeah, let's back down a little bit and just show how we do this in other ways. So this notion of how we dress things seems to escalate complexity. So we can look at, for example, disease and antibiotics, right? So we have a disease, first move antibiotics, and then now we're on the arms race, right? Between the, the bacteria or the, and the antibiotic, we, we escalate the complexity. Pesticides and health, right? So we want to grow good food. We start, our mind does something the way it does, and we come up with, oh, pesticides. Let's spray the pesticides. Now the insects start creating resilience, and then our pesticides use gets bigger and more powerful, and then all of a sudden, we're not healthy, which was the original reason why we created pesticides. Do you see how I'm saying? Everything that way we approach something creates this first move that escalates complexity, and in the middle of that, all we do is keep doing more of that until the net outcome is antithetical to the task we were trying to do in the first place. Financial system, same way. We have made so many com more and more complex financial instruments that, you know, every time the economy gets fragile, we make a more complex financial instrument. And then we, and then, you know, this is, so you can see it everywhere. It's this, it's the exact same thing in management. Management science, instead of becoming, oh, let's just be human with each other. We get into systems thinking and then thinking of strategizing human systems and then you know, I say to managers, don't strategize your employees. They're smart too. And so you have deviant behavior and you have, you know, so everywhere you look, this is how we reason ourselves into action. It inherently escalates complexity. So once you start to see this and you're a process philosopher like me, or you're interested in the mind, you say, well, what can I do with my mind where I don't make that first move? Like, how is it if I just suspend that, if every time I see that, and, and this sounds, you know, it's very, it's very meta-theoretical, but I learned this uh, for 33 years. I ran a landscape design build company. And for some reason, I always knew, like, that, like whether you're negotiating with a supplier or a vendor or an employee, there were certain moves that if you made, made that move, you know, pay me now or you'd pay more later. It would just build complexity into the system. And so people would come in uh, trying to sell you these big software packages that supposedly, you know, controlled all your costs and your job costing and this and that. And they looked right, but they were so beyond the human scale, like beyond what was actually needed. And so during my whole career in business, which was quite successful, I always was very keen on like, don't make that first move. That first move is just going to escalate complexity. Same thing in relationships, you know? You know when, if, you've, if you're going to say something, that's just going to make it worse. It's just going to escalate it and it'll make a bigger nightmare, a bigger knot to clean out. And it's like, but there's something about our minds that moves 
automatically moves in that direction. And so it's all, so now I'm explaining it more like a felt sense toward action, but it's all the same thing. It's all the propensity to think the solutions up the ladder of complexity. And part of it's also, you know, the mental structure consciousness, but then, you know, this is how our schooling is and et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's this point at which someone like me says, but what if I don't do that? Then how does the world appear to me? Then what is possible? Can I live in, in between cognitive complexity and direct action, let's say? Can I live in this other kind of space that seems to be like a way of living with more emergent potential rather than, than what we used to? And, and, so, and so you gave a few examples. You gave, you know, uh, finance industry, you, uh, you know, relationships, you, you, uh, uh, education. What does it look like to uh, to not make that first move? Like in the relation, do I just shut up, <laughs> or, or or like what, what does it look like for the finance? Do we just not regulate, or like what what is it? Uh, what are some implications of what we would do differently? Well, it, it's diff- it looks different in different situations. In relationships, yeah, you just. I, I mean, I teach this in my coaching course. You just you do just stop, but of course, just keeping your mouth closed doesn't stop all the you know the internal processing. So you have to stop and witness that. And I tell people to that it's a very strange period because you don't know what else to put in its place. But if you stop, if you start by stopping, you're like halfway there already, right? So there's a lot of that. And gardening, it's the same way. It's it's like you'll feel the need to destroy something. I mean, you're gardening, you want more life. And then there'll be a weed and you'll feel the need to destroy something. And then you can say, wow, look at the anger that's coming up in me about a weed. Well, what is a weed actually? And then you start to deconstruct the way you're holding it. And then why do I feel that way about it? And pretty soon you'll realize that in many, many cases that weed is growing there because it's doing something like, permeating through the soil in a way that the tomato grows better. I mean, I've done this huge experiment with my my vegetable garden in the back. It's a, it's like an acre now. And the less I do, the more I understand, the less I do. I've got tomatoes growing crazy. Wild. I've got pumpkins and acorn squash growing in the trees. And it's all because of understanding more and doing less. Like to know that the system has the capacities for its own regeneration. So it's not reducing complexity. It's really starting to understand. It's like having energy for free. You know, um, I teach people in organizations when, you know, if an employee is yelling at you, don't try to resist that. Don't try to squelch that energy. It's actually energy for free. Ask yourself, how can I take that energy and put it where I want it to go? It's also the way you, you train stallions. You know, you, there's so much energy. You cannot push it down, you know, or else you're just building a bigger bomb. It's like, this is energy for free. How can I take this and put it where I want to go? It's the same in, in teaching children, you know, all across America where children get excited and they are curious. We have them now just sit down and be quiet. 
you know, and we just so so those that's that those are all insights that I've had. You know, all of a sudden you see, oh my God, it's energy for free. You know, there's so much energy in this employee. How can I make that useful to both of us instead right. of squelching it first? When I squelch it, they just get madder, build a bigger bomb. Eventually, it just escalates. So once you start to really see this, I mean, so. You know, this is my Wikipedia entry. This is what I really wish I could uh, translate more into the world. It's this huge potential and just this one insight of releasing complexity. So you're, you're not saying it's not even it's not like, you know, 100 percent do the thing you were going to do or zero percent do the thing you were going to do. But find a way to channel this energy to somewhere more productive, basically. Yes. Yes. So the insight here is instead of getting involved in a fight or competition, which will increase the complexity, say, what is arising before me? It's energy for free. And then how can I work with that? I mean, even just making that switch in your own mind changes, completely changes the relationship on the other side. They're like, you know, the the person would be like, what, what? My boss isn't yelling at me. Like, like, it's just a real kind of Tai Chi move, you know, to, to not fight not fight in a way that constantly escalates the problem we seem to be in this trap both in our behavior and our decisions and i would argue ultimately it's because of the architecture of our of our reasoning i guess i have two questions for you one is does that mean you sort of have somewhat major beef with i guess systems thinkers or, or complex this complex science field or i'm curious where you overlap or differ from from that whole body work but then I see what you were talking about on an individual level, but I'm curious, you know, what do you say to the question of like, hey, you know, the climate or Wall Street, aren't these complex, yeah. really complex problems? And and how do you even you even approach them? Yeah. Aren't so things different at different scales? Yeah. So good question. So the first is, yes, there is systems thinking that's on the top of the highest kind of complexity, the latter really complex, complex complexity. So I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in complexity science, which in complexity science, it really, if, you, if you're actually doing complexity science, then it releases complexity. So for example, in real complexity science, cause there, you know, there's an issue with causality. You can't make an if-then proposition in complexity science. So you're not going to be able to make these propositions that if this, then that, hence, and then the third term gets higher. That's So in true complex thinking, it's funny, they call it complexity science, because without if-then propositions, there's no hypotheses, which means there's no experimental setup. So it's hardly a science at all. But um, people like Dave Snowden and Jordan Hall, they're moving toward uh, like Dave Snowden. How do you, how do you navigate complex systems? You sense you respond, you observe, you observe, respond, sense. This is not complex thinking. These are small iterative actions that advance you forward. You use intuitive sensing, right? You don't make big plans. You don't have big blueprints in complex systems that you know that is impossible. So you will see that people that are addressing complex science or a science of emergence are already naturally using a different type of mind. They're naturally looking at what I call numinous causality. 
It's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. So these kinds of questions, these kinds of attempts to solve some of our problems is moving us already to a different kind of mind that's not a, a synthetic mind, not a medicine synthetic mind. There are actually six different ways to go meta, and some of these are moving to a deconstructive or a sim- simplicity model. And so you hear, uh, you know, Jordan Hall call his work deep code. They're looking at like units of agency. You know, this is different than a big complex thinking. He doesn't come across with these big, huge, complex approaches. He's trying to say, let me reset myself. Let me see what is actually happening. What is uh, signal from noise? You know, this notion of trying to get something elegant and work from there in a very clear and kind of crisp way. It's not reductive because it doesn't say these are all parts and this one fits into this part. It's releasing complexity. And in my work, I talk about protocols, protocols that code for emergent patterns. So in climate, for example, I would say you can't work at the level of the emergent pattern. The emergent pattern is what? Well, even that in climate is kind of hard to to, um, think about. You have to work at the level of the the protocols that code for that, right? So so it may be, for example, uh, the protocol that codes for climate is CO2. So then you reduce CO2. Well, that's not that complex, is it? Well, then, of course, there's other things in the climate issue that that make that complex. But in reality, um, you know, that's why I love, I forget his name. He, he used to work at Google. It's either Tom, I think it's Tom Chi. You know, he did all, he ran all the numbers and he's like, we need to plant trees, <laughs> you know. So this is a different type of mind. It's a very pragmatic, realistic approach. So he invested in a company that has smart drones that are better at shooting the the seedling into an area that has more promise that the the, the seedling will survive. So that's a kind of different mind. Now, if, if you then say, well, why don't we just do things like that? Well, then, because other parts of the climate issue are filled with people who are only trying to manufacture complexity for different reasons. Maybe they have their own agenda. Maybe they'll be losers in, in, in the new this choice field or something like that. And so the, you'll you see these moves already being made in, in our society today, this, this move to use our minds in, in a kind of a different way. Yeah, and, and we will get into the the meta moves, but, but first, just want to zoom out for a sec. You know, it is interesting. There's a sort of uh, anytime a market failure comes up, you know, there's one side or one, one group says, "Okay, we need to we need something different. We need regulation, uh, or this area actually needs to be you know not part of the market in some way." And then another, the market fundamentalist side says, "No, no, no actually, we just need better markets. We just need better design markets." Right. And maybe similarly, you know, as we we're talking about, like you know, a different kind of science. You know, people could say, oh, no, no, we just need better science. We just need, you know, science. We do the same thing, just better. Right, and, and, or more. <laughs> yeah, more. Yeah. And we were saying is... More, we, better, and faster. <laughs> yes. And we were saying is, no, no, we need something different that also includes parts of, of that. Yes. Uh, and and this is where it gets tricky, because everybody likes to say, you know, Einstein said that you can't 
solve the problem at the level of the mind consciousness that created it, right? But people just think, okay, we have to go to the next level, which is just more, better, bigger, quicker. You know, so it's, it, he didn't yeah. mean level, like just level up the same thing. He really mean, meant like a whole new mind, you know, like, like you have to get off that mind entirely. So there's a real, it's, there's a real pickle there. You study, you said you, you teach uh, consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so I guess how, how is the way you think about consciousness different from sort of the main, main you know, consensus academic view of consciousness um, as it relates to, you know, the evolution of mind or this sort of need for a new kind of mind, which we'll get into. Well, I think that, that we are talking about a new mind, not because we're so smart, but because a new mind is actually being evolving in front of our very eyes, you know, or maybe a couple of different new minds. So it's not like we are teaching ourselves to have a new mind. We are just the emergent pattern of the new, of a new mind. Does that make sense? I mean, the new mind's not coming out because someone invented it and then started teaching people. It's just that given our existential situations and the technologies we have, people like myself and Dave Stoden and Jordan Hall and people and Charles Eisenstein's also working in this field. Um, if you read his new book, Climate, you know, I forget what the title is, but it's, it's a new approach on climate. And he's like, there's a lot of traps in thinking that climate change is this big problem way out there. We have to fight it and throw resources at it and this and that. He's saying that whole mindset is why we have climate problems. And so in order to solve them, we have to redress the mindset that we have no choice but to redress the mindset. You know, these are kinds of the pickles we are in now, like like one of the problems between how directly coupled the economy is with climate problems is that we have to use the economy. We have to fire up the economy to do climate change intervention. And it's all kinds of crazy because the the rat, you know, the snake's eating its own tail here. That's something that we that needs to be looked at. You know, people will complain about the economy and the devastation of the environment all in one sentence. And I'm like, you you can't have those two things in the same sentence, right? It, and that's why it escalates complexity because you're dealing with this pseudo entangled system instead of just saying, no, that we have to decouple these two situations. You can't say those two things in the same sentence. And so a way to... What at least complexity looks there is, hey, we have to be okay with not having economic growth if we want to have a better environment. I'm trying to get to what are some of the, what tra- what trade-offs do we have to make in, re- in releasing complexity on sort of a macro scale? Well, one thing we could say is how do we decouple the economy from the environmental devastation? Now, that's still a hard question, but it's not as complex as the geopolitics of climate change as we see it on social media today. And then, though, I mean, these the reasons why these questions are tough is because the tough part of them is not an intellectual or cognitive task or challenge. It's 
you get down to saying, well, why don't I want to really decouple the economy from environmental destruction? Because you might see that at some deep level, you actually choose that that's the destruction of the earth. At some level, that's what you actually are choosing every day. Now you have to face that. So a lot of this work comes down to like really being brutally honest. One of the reasons why we try to keep maintain false complexity is we don't want to be really face what is actually our our lived experience, what's actually living in us. So this is this you see this it's everywhere. So that's where the teaching consciousness studies, teaching uh, transformative education, because all of these questions are not just pseudo epistemic complexity. They're actually the inability to address this problem at the closest denominator, which is your own actual self and coming to terms with that. Yeah. And what is that process like? (laughs) (laughs) It's painful. (laughs) It's painful and it's liberating. I happen to think that it's liberating, even if what you end up with is pretty shitty news. It's liberating to finally get to square one, you know, when you're like with a partner and it's going on and and finally you just realize, you know what it is? It's just that we don't really want to be together anymore. I mean, it's shitty news. But once you get down to square one, or at least you give yourself permission to see that perspective, because then sometimes with partners, that's when they realize then they stay together forever because they actually have been giving themselves permission to try this perspective on. And so that's what the process feels like. Like, um, what if I just allow the snails to eat my garden and watch how angry that makes me. And then I think, why are snails making me angry? You know, or something like that. You, you realize there's so much foolishness in your own intelligence. Like uh, Jordan Hall calls it malware. I mean, it's just so foolish. We're just running these foolish scripts and then hyper complexifying them. And I don't see that we are going to solve our problems unless we get down to this level of intimate detail, not out there in the complex universe, but with us, you know, who do we want to be? Who are we? Who do we want to become? These things are complex in the sense that they're so close to us that we can't really see them. And we're afraid of asking these questions but they're not epistemically complex. Like you don't need huge words and all this systems and concept to understand it. You just need to be mindful and have the, and learn some kind of awareness practice and some kind of self inquiry, um, which of course is our, our technologies that we have and people are becoming more interested in them again because of their power this way. Is, is, Is the biggest mistake systems thinkers make, that they see the world as complicated instead of complex, that determine it basically instead of indeterminate? Exactly. I mean, basically, to me, there's two key features. I think I wrote out 11, but there's the two basic features to see if someone's a complexity thinker or a systems thinker is a lot of high systems thinkers, you know, they'll put out these like these models and they just have a lot of linear causality going everywhere. 
you know, um, my friend says there's still linear causality, except the, except the lines are curved. You know, this thing goes here, and this, and and they they believe that if you could had the capacity to study the whole system, you could make all those lines, you could fill out all the lines, right? So that's a systems thinker. They believe there is linear causality in the system. It just may be too complicated to find it. So that's one. But the other one that fascinates me is that systems thinker inherently deanimate part of the system. So if you think of ecological management, we humans are going to manage the forest. So the forest is a de-animated part of the system, right? As if, as if there's not already a larger complex engagement between the person and the forest. Uh, managers will say they'll go to systems thinking, uh, management systems, and it's as if the manager occupies a position outside of the participation of the people he's going to manage hence he can make a system about them of them and move them around like an object so systems thinking inherently deanimates part of the system that's actually animate that actually has agency and this is part of why you have it escalates complexity because when you deanimate an agent who's also evolving, you get this arms race. I want to talk about other examples of what you think are malware that maybe people might not even understand that malware that either because they, you know, uh, escalate complexity or, or do other mm-hmm. things. One 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 example might be is that is like utilitarianism, a form of malware, being able to reduce all of our yeah. So utilitarian, the greatest good for the greatest number of people yeah. and the. Yeah, the implication there is that you can um, you know, one that you can figure that that out, um, you know, and then two that you you can act even directionally on that premise. Yeah, that's a reduction. You know, we're making this distinction between reducing and releasing complexity. That that reduces the complexity of the system. Um, you're basically bracketing out agents in the system, right? You're saying, okay, well, we're going to we're going to pretend that the system is, uh, the members of the systems are those agents who behave according to our theory. So once I start with that proposition, then it's easy for me to prove that the members of the system behave according to my theory, because I started by bracketing out the rest, you know? Uh, So that's the kind of malware that you see a lot in theory building. A lot of theory building, like the, the classic Spinozian argument, is you start by constraint, like let's say it's a reader, right? You're reading a Spinozian argument. You start by constraining the definitions so they fit the propositions that you propose, and then you systematically constrain the trajectory of the argument until you get to the conclusion that you previously designed in. It, it's like a decision tree. You, do you ever use those? Uh, this was before the internet, obviously. And you'd go out into the woods to identify trees. And you had those those things. It would be like, okay, is the leaf serrated or smooth? Right? So if it's serrated, you go here. If it's smooth, you go there. Okay, so now I've bracketed out all those choices. And then is it this or that? And then eventually you're, you're led to the identification of the tree. That's what a good Spinozian argument actually does. It constrains, by definition, 
your options and it keeps doing that very subtly until you are forced to see what the philosopher sees. So that's a kind of malware. It's used a lot in um, legal process. You know, and of course, the way they do that is by being very specific in their question and what the the uh, what the witness can or cannot say. And, you know, they can't give anecdotal evidence or anything. So this is kind of an architecture of mine that is um, is kind of malware. It's and let's uh, let's do our best to uh, and it's hard, but to crystallize like what I can hear my, uh, in front of the background being. What is the alternative, or, or how can we paint a picture of what, what the alternative there looks like? It's, it's you sort of alluded to it. Or it's a combination of sensing and a combination of reason, or how would we sort of? I mean, without reducing it, how would we sort of do our best to explain? It? Yeah, so there's a lot of experiments, people experimenting with this out there. So, um, so an alternative would be to switch to complexity science and the science of emergence, and this is all of these things I'm going to suggest are not well formed in the human consciousness yet. People are still trying to work it out. You know, like Stuart Kaufman's early work was in this direction, trying to say like with autocatalytic cell sets, you could have the emergence of life without some of these other systems properties that we seem to think life needs or something, you know? So his early work, is in this direction. Dave Snowden's work and cognitive edge is in this direction. Who else can I say? There's a there's a really cool little book by David Chandler called called Onto Politics, and he shows that there are currently three directions that we are going to um, as a species and as societies in order to try to solve these problems. And that one's called mapping. He talks about mapping uh, instead of this metasynthetic. Mapping is the attempt to reach uh, causal depth. So I would say that Daniel Schmattenberger is a mapper. He's always trying to get like generator functions, the causal depths of things, and how how complexity emerges from that. Um, uh, Chandler says the second one is sensing. Now that's a bad word. Uh, I would call it tracking because in this, he's talking about the use of AI to look at patterns that are correlational, not causal. So the whole Internet of Things and a lot of uh, what we do in sensing, surveillance sensing of terrorist networks and stuff is that form. Um, And the third one is hacking. And hacking is more like what I'm talking about, like to really use our minds in a different way such that we get more clear, direct, impactful insight into a problem in in a way that um, releases the complexity. So he does a really good job of explaining these three directions. And and is this relate uh, or very closely related to uh, you had a series on on the six different ways to to go meta? Is that yeah. sort of can you, yeah? Can you un- unpack some of those ways, uh, or so people can get the just of it? Of course, they can you know read the series and, and listen to you know an entire podcast dedicated to that. But. Yeah. So we already looked at the metasynthetic, which creates a a bigger conglomeration. Then there's the meta deconstructive. This is for those of your audience that know how to meditate. You're deconstructing the story from the feeling, and then the perception from the experience and 
You can even deconstruct time and space out of it. So that's a meta deconstructive or meta subtractive. Then there's something I call the orthogonal move that I say uh, Adam Robert at the side view, which is interesting. He calls it the side view is, and that is to create a a new kind of um, way of looking at things and see if it's profitable. So for example, the move from Newtonian physics to Einstein when he was thinking about, oh, maybe gravity is just the change in an inertial frame of reference. This was a, a thought experiment he had. And he's like, well, if I think about it, it that way, is that profitable science? And it was. Uh, Whitehead did the same thing with speculative realism and process philosophy. He thought, well, what if we uh, don't look at objects as things, but we look as events and events and relations instead? What would that be a profitable way? of looking at things, would something interesting be born out of that? And there, there's been a lot of influence in, in his suggestion uh, in the sciences and philosophy from there. So that's a meta-orientation I call the orthogonal. You just say, let's make up a different way of a different theory. Uh, we don't know if it works, but let's see if something profitable will happen if we think within this new construction. So like I have been writing on something called complex potential states as a, a potential alternative to thinking in terms of complex adaptive systems. You know, the Darwinian, the Darwinian notion of adaptive dynamics is also contributes to escalation of complexity. So I'm saying, what if I could suspend that? It's very difficult uh, because it's, if you're any kind of systems thinker like we are, every it permeates everything, that everything is adapting to everything else. So what if I suspend that and I think of what's think of reality as if it's constantly changing its shape, so new potentials are advancing into the future, rather than agents are adapting to each other into some kind of law of competition. And then we can borrow, in, in my article, I borrow from Whitehead in this notion of how unmanifested potentials and threshold events can shape potential states and actually be a, a dynamic force in evolutionary change. But then it'll get us out of thinking of everything is adapting competitively to everything else. And it's a way to detrain ourselves from this escalating complexity, which is the only way we can think right now. So that's called an orthogonal move. You, you suspend the way you think and you make up something new and say, is this, is this have any potential? Is it relevant? Can it be useful and profitable? in addressing this problem in a new way. So it's called an orthogonal move. So those are three, three of them. And some of the others are a little, are a little more eclectic. I, I reference simplexity, deep code is, is part of simplexity. And, and my notion of building code, working at the level of protocols um, and not at the level of the emergent patterns. These are all experiments in new minds that are happening. Um, a, a lot of it's, you know, in in your audience, in your field. Let's give one more line to the to the staunch scientist who's listening and, and says, hey, hey, you know, I, I hear the Einstein quote, but, you know, the world is determinate. You know, we will we'll find better metrics, find better ways of understanding. We, we always have and, uh, and, and we always will. And 
you know, if humans can't understand it, well, AI can or something, you know, yeah. or, you know, we, cre- we create systems that, that can, why, why is that wrong? Is it, or why is that in, incorrect? I guess they sort of deter that with enough tools, with enough, you know, people and systems and even machines, you know, we, we can, we can yeah. understand it. So it's neither wrong or incorrect. It just doesn't seem to be working. It just doesn't seem to be working. So I'm not, you know, I'm not an ideologue. I'm just saying that, yeah, if that were true, we would have solved these things already. If we already knew how to do it, it would already be done. I, I don't, I don't think there's anything lack of effort, lack of connection, lack of resources that is stopping us. I think the, hence I would say that it's the approach that's, that's one, it doesn't seem to be working. And two, it seems to be working against us, like this whole thing. Like every time you use the economy to do a climate change intervention, you're making climate change worse. It, with these, these, there's ways in which things are so coupled, the tasks we're working on don't work. I mean, we all know this about the markets and the financial institutions. And, and, and you know, the, there's all, the only staunch scientist that you're describing is is they're not the top scientists. You know, I go to spiritual communities and people are always kind of beating up on the scientists, but the scientists know that uh, that the frame in which you ask a question is a big part of the science that you're going to be capable of. It's pretty, it's pretty common knowledge for top scientists. You know, it's like at one point we thought there was an ether, A-E-T-H-E-R, I think it was, because light had to propagate through space the way sound propagated on airwaves. So there was this term, the ether, and then we didn't have the ether. And now there's dark energy and dark matter, which is kind of like serves a function that the ether used to, you know? So it's not these ideas, these, these epistemic tools are, we partner with epistemic tools to learn something about what is real. Um, and all scientists know that a big part of the understanding and explanation relies on what epistemic tool you use. Yeah, it is interesting. We, I mean, we seem to be at a really fork in the road where, where a lot of certainly, you know, my Silicon Valley audience listening believes that, Hey, the problems are, we're just not doing what we're doing well enough. And just, yeah, like said, more, bigger, better, faster. And, and then there's a Charles Eisenstein. I'm just reading his book or just read sacred yeah. economics and says, Hey, no, no, we need, and there's a whole, you know, community behind that as well and, and different thinkers we need a radical reshift like we no, we can't keep doing this and i don't know if those groups are talking to each other or i, don't, I mean it, it seems that the silicon Valley crowd is more momentum maybe than the charles Eisenstein crowd or, or i don't say more momentum as much as because that is a lot of momentum too yeah more maybe status quo or incumbency bias or something but it, it seems like a real fork in the road yeah, I mean, I think we don't know, and and I think there's a lot of experiments going on. I mean, like this, the the Silicon Valley crowd are also into cryptocurrencies and distributed autonomous organizations. These are all orthogonal to the way we think of governance, currency, and markets. You know, they're they're radical new ideas of how to organize society, right? So these aren't these aren't let's make cryptocurrency. So the nation state can continue to do what it's doing. It's like the nation state is broken. You know, uh, we need something like 
platforms in which people can organize around primary primary identities around digital platforms. So this is this is radical reinvention of um, something that they assume is not working. You don't hear any, anyone say, let's just have more senators, more representatives, and more Supreme Court justices right. and vote five times a year. That'll <laughs> fix the problem. And we're not there yet with, with, with markets. And uh, Right. But there's a lot of experimenting going on with markets. Um, and a lot of this experimenting is not because people necessarily want to be good, kind people, but because almost everybody realizes that you know, there's a lot of risk in it. It's really... Um, are, are there experiments that resemble sort of Charles Eisenstein's ideas or, or get close to them? Well, I think he's, you know, an example. He's an exemplar of his own ideas. And there's a lot of, there's, you know, that's interesting. We're talking about the Bay Area because the Bay Area, there's there's groups of people that I know. Yes, they work for Silicon Valley and they, they're coders, a lot of them, but they're doing a lot of experiments in, in co-housing and um, co-ownership and, you know, co-working and trying to really get off you know, as, as Jordan Hall calls it, you know, move away from game A and try to practice some of the principles of game B. Um, so there's a lot of experimenting going on. What the principles that people are learning in that process are, it would be interesting to collate them. So the way I look at it is I think that um, I had this vision that there's a forest and the trees are all burning, you know, so this is like existential risk and climate catastrophe and stuff. But if you're in some of these communities where a lot of these experiments and these new ways of thinking are happening, it's kind of like you also see the mycorrhizae underneath the forest floor is actually starting to explode, you know? So that's how I experience things right now. It's like, you know, of course, if all the trees completely burn down, then the mycorrhizae will also die. But I think there's a lot going on that doesn't make social media, that isn't on the Twitter feed, that is going to make it matter. And I think they're going to reach threshold, threshold you know, there, there's certain threshold level at which more and more people will be doing this, more and more people gain confidence and then try the experiment themselves. And I think a lot of that is actually happening. It's just, you know, kind of hidden in plain sight. Yeah. Okay. What if uh, part of this this science or or technology crowd is is interested in what you're saying and they're saying, okay, we understand sort of the inherent, um, you know, faults of of just a science-based approach. But when you talk about sensing, I don't really understand sort of the the justification for that or or why that leads to, insights i guess or, or the, so let's explain more of the sort of the not the intuitive approach in the justification for it and, and maybe that can segue into uh how you think about collective intelligence yeah so that's a very hard question to answer um so i maybe i'll take a cognitive neuroscience approach to answer it so when you study cognitive neuroscience. A lot of this research is is cool. You know, in years ago, 30 years ago, I was doing cognitive neuroscience at UC Berkeley. And I called that first wave cognitive neuroscience, and it created like a pickle jar. And so much cool neuroscience is happening now 
that uh, if people want to revisit it, they really should. If you're like me and you kind of gave up on it. But for example, um, there uh, is something like the amount of information your neocortex, your computational mind can handle is like 16 to 42 bits of information a second. But your whole body, your vagus nerve system and your um, uh, neuroelectrical chemical system and now your gut biomes and the, the millions of species of bacteria in your gut are creating neurochemicals in response to environmental stimuli. All this is something like 11 million bits a second. So the embodied organism is a much larger sensor information processing capacity than what is was used to be studied cognitive neuroscience. And so the question is, can we hack that? Now, people have been hacking it and not knowing it. Like, so for example, if you look at chess players, you know, they do a lot of, they study a lot of moves and stuff, but when they're at the top of their game, they're just looking, they're not thinking, they're just looking and then, ah, then they see the next move, right? So this kind of decision-making, this kind of processing is happening in the lower embodied bit from the basal ganglia system down. This is where the solutions are being thought about and and the, the answers are being discovered. It's not a cognitive process. It happens. And so we've people have been studying this. For example, there's this guy, Bob, Bob Klein, and He's an amazing ragtime pianist, and he's he's considered really good because in ragtime, you have all these funny, you know, rhythms. Like you might have a, you know, one-eighth over five-sixteenths or something, and then the right hand's playing something else, and they're not resonant. So they studied his brain, and they found out that he could run known symphonies, five parallel tracks of known symphonies simultaneously in his background processing such that at any given moment you could say, now the Hayden, now the Chopin, even though he had started them at different times. And so just by cue, this awareness would be served up in his consciousness and he'd know where that track was at at that given point in time. Now, this is not happening. He's not humming to himself. He doesn't have spreadsheets in front of his mind. There's no imaging processing. There's no auto, you know, um, internal talk or noise. This is happening sub and unconsciously. And then you ask the unconscious to serve up the answer into your mind. So these are deep intuitive processes that people have known about for a long time. My interest is can we make them, if we know about them, can we make them more conscious? Can we work with this stuff more consciously? And so when I was in college, I remember I was in a physics class and physics was hard for me because I hadn't really a good enough understanding of math. I did well in math, but I didn't really understand math. And when you get into quantum mechanics and, you know, uh, a lot of the problems were hard for me. But one day I was working on a really tough assignment and I fell asleep in the cube. And then I woke up and I was like, oh, and then I realized I knew the answer. So then I was like, this is really cool. Why don't I just like study for a little while and go home and go to sleep? And I used to start calling them my elves. And I realized like there was neural processing, 
sophisticated neural processing happening, whether I was paying attention or not. And then I realized that the paying attention was energy inefficient. So I started hacking this, you know, this is a long time ago. I started getting interested in the processing power of the lower, you know, the lower instrument. We also know that the primitive mind is more primitive, but more complex than the, the new structures of mind. The primitive minds are parallel processing, very, very refined distinction making. The mind that we, we teach at school, the mind that we school is a clumsy coarse instrument dependent upon coarse categories. We know this to be true. We should change our education and our whole way of thinking about the evolving human potential. And then these new minds will come online and they will solve the problems we have. So it's all there. So I answered in, in, in terms of neuroscience, we could answer in, in other kind of embodied practices. But um, yeah, to me, it's just all lined up, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I wonder if in as soon as, you know, a decade or two, the entire field of economics would be like discredited or, or that assumes sort of a specific very type type of mind and very type of way of decision making. Yeah, no, I agree with you that there, you know, and it's humbling. I've had people here in collective insight practice try to think of what is an economy without a currency. And you realize how much stuck in a limiting paradigm you are. Because you might say something like, well, gift economy. And then someone will say, but then when do I get it back? Oh, I'm back to transactional economy. Like, But this is a great topic for trying to work on these meta moves out to get outside of this malware. A lot of people are trying to answer just this one question. And, you, you know, you, could, you have to try on different things. Like you might say, well, maybe we have to decouple economy from the notion of scale. And then they say, well, that's not useful. Maybe we have to do this. Well, this has this problem. I think that we, knew, we need new definition of what economy is. In my work, the protocol for an economy is... All uh, dynamic systems tend to try, I'm going to use anthropomorphic, to lower the thresholds for action. And this is what I think an economy is in a human system. It's that which lowers thresholds for action. So if you think of every single economic instrument ever made over time, they're made to enable to lower the action thresholds in the system, right? So once you get credit, lowers you know you get distribution of labor lowers the action threshold so what if we start from there what if we say an economy is the dynamic phase in a complex system that tends toward lowering the thresholds for action so that's kind of an interesting way to try to get a reboot on what is an economy and so, so I work with that as one of the protocols for uh, collective collective action or emergent culture. Yeah. Paint a picture a little bit of what would be different or what might change if people really understood collective intelligence or, 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 or where that's going. What, what do you want people to really understand about, about that concept and the importance of, of it and, and um, why they pay attention more to it? The way I, I describe the difference between the uh, serial processing of the brain and the parallel processing of the body and how powerful parallel processing is, 
when we try to learn together right now, we rely on serial processing. We don't, we can't let a lot of different perspectives in. We have to kind of control our words and this and that. Um, so it's not very imaginative and there's not a lot of novelty is it's very hard to inject novelty into the system. So collective intelligence, as I understand it, collective insight practice is learning how to engage each other's intelligence in kind of parallel processing way. Um, so there's, you can inject a lot more novelty in the system, um, which um, hypothetically or, or theoretically can boost you over some kind of threshold of meaning making or sense making that is limiting us in the way we ask our questions today. You know, it's, it reminds me of horse workshops. I do some people, you know, the people's, people's attitudes and emotions are tied into their posture. So if you're always like, um, you know, like this, then we, there's a TED talk on this. And, and so um, this is a chicken and egg problem. Did, does the recurring emotion um, change your body or vice versa? It's, 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 it's entangled. And so in the horse workshops, we work on getting people, horses respond very, very uh, discreetly to posture. So we try, you know, I'll say walk like a peacock and see if the horse is different. And people, people have trouble using their body in a new way. You know, it's like, and so I'll just say, I don't care what you do, just do something different with your body. And it turns out for some people, it's really hard. They're so habituated. And I think our minds are more encrusted or equally encrusted. It's just really hard for people to do something different with their minds. And um, I think that that's incredibly limiting it's like those those little tests where you have three you know you have matchsticks and you have a box of matches and something and you you have to solve a problem and people can't see that you can use the tax in a different way than you know i forget how it goes but they can't literally can't see what's in front of them in any new light and can you imagine if a billion people could see what's in front of us in a billion different new ways. There'd have to be much more information and possibility in front of us. It is interesting because you know one way to release complexity is to just have one dictator and one message. <laughs> you know, just sort of centralize everything. And you're saying no, no, decentralize everything, but you know, come up with new minds to be able to process, internalize, and and work with all that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious how, if we could say a little bit about how that relates to coherence. And, and you had this one uh, Rebel Wisdom interview where you talk about coherence as a distinctly local phenomenon. Yeah. Here's what you mean by local and, and why is locality a linchpin for coherence? Is that related to Dunbar? Or? Yeah. So we'll use your example. So it seems like one big centralized dictatorship is releasing complexity, um, but but it's very expensive. That's a very expensive and costly, um, you know, you can think of it as trying to get one, everyone aligned in a single coherence. So again, I'm going to cheat and just use the laws of physics. I don't really usually do this, but it just makes it, you can, you're just take it as a metaphor, really complex 
emergent structures, when they cohere, they're dissipative structures. So they always create more entropy or more turbulence somewhere else. So for example, where you can look at it is that we've had a uh, condition of relative peace since the World War I and World War II. But the military budgets of the world has escalated in, in, enormously because it's really expensive <laughs> to cohere at that level. It seems like local coherence are many, you know, many, many instances of local coherence in and out of sense making will could liberate a lot of energy, energy for free. And now I don't want to trivialize this because I really believe there's a direct correlation between the amount of human energy we can liberate, even like emotional energy and energy for affection and love and intimacy. You know, you, it, you're not exhausted when you are in those kinds of states. And I think that's directly tied into how much energy we extract from the earth. Because then you have less needs and less hang-ups and less compulsions and less addictions. So these things are t- directly tied up. Local coherence, free energy in the system, happy people, intimate relationships, less extraction from the earth. Global markets, global coherence, more expensive, more extraction from the earth. They just, they're all, it's all very quite simple. We just don't seem to be able to enact um, what we already know. Yeah. And, and maybe let's bring this a little bit to organizations. So you've written a lot about consultant for organizations and, and talked about, uh, you know, ha- how management has evolved. Uh, and how we need to do some of the work we've been talking about. We're generally in the context of organizations and and what you know more participatory organizations mm-hmm. look like. And if, if someone's you know from Sogal is, is reading this, they might say, oh, you know, we tried this with holacracy and we tried this with various, various forms, and and they haven't worked yet. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess what might you what color might you say in some of the central principles of what how you wish organizations would change, and and what do you say to the person who says they ha- they haven't worked yet? Yeah, so I think that what we need in organizational theory, let's say, also has to move in the same directions of complex dynamics, complex open systems. Holacracy is built on metasystemic thinking. You know, there's there's little subsystems inside of larger subsystems inside of larger subsystems. That's that's metasynthetic thinking. So I, my work on organizations works on protocols and emergent patterns. So let's say trust. Trust is an emergent pattern in a human system. Who trusts who? I do these exercises where people put these little circles, concentric circles. And in the innermost circle is who you trust the most. And then a little further out, you know, oh, I trust them, but they don't make my inner circle. And you can see that we're walking around with these kind of like concentric circles of trust. That's who we are. They're patterns that emerge from the center of our being and change over time, right? So when then we could say, well, what are the, how are these patterns of trust emerging in natural human systems? So that's a whole different language than something like holacracy. One of the, one of the things that I look at in my work is Um, uh, patterns of trust, action threshold, and power. 
and how they actually form complex feed loops. So what do I mean by complex feed loops? It's just like the brain. In the brain, nerves, when, when some neurons are excited, they inhibit other neurons. But the neurons that they inhibit might inhibit other neurons. So in, in effect, they also excite other neurons. And they also directly excite other neurons. So there's these complex feed loops of inhibition and excitation that are nonlinear. So certain, certain um, patterns cause the reverse, very complex subsystems, right? So when we look at organizations, we want to expect that there's complex feed loops inside the natural arising dynamics. And to give you an example, in, in, a, in an organization, as, as trust rises, then action thresholds fall. This is very intuitive. Just like when you trust your child more, you let them do more, right? So in, this is all human systems. This is the way we are. But as trust rises and action thresholds fall, then small asymmetries in skill will become uh, exaggerated. Right, because at this time in place, the action threshold fell. Maybe Susan was on vacation, and the whole project got way ahead of her. Okay, so trust rises, action thresholds fall, power asymmetries go up. When power asymmetries go up, trust falls. So you have this kind of like two-cycle engine. Now, all natural systems, all human systems have a third term, and that is to directly redress the power asymmetry to reboot the trust and action threshold system. So we can look at emergent culture from just these three protocols. And as I said before, the action threshold is the economy. That's what economies do. The trust is the role of governance. That's what governments do. And redressing the power asymmetry is the role of the welfare state. So health, education, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, affirmative action, training. This is all societies have these three institutions because they are just small, self-organizing human dynamics at institutional scale. So we can look, we can potentially Get a group of people with a lot of expertise in areas sitting around and looking at emergent culture from these protocols of collective action. And, and they're robust. They actually, you can find them in uh, ecological science, uh, ecological, ecological resilience dynamic systems under different terms. But this is a sense of, so of, I didn't just do what Holacracy did. I just didn't outline how sh people should behave. I said, this is how people are. So how can we work at the level of protocols and microstates and threshold events so that we can reboot an emergence of a, of a new system that, that, you know, the old systems helped us for a while, but that avoids some of the known traps at where humanity is now. So that's what I call working with the level of the protocols of the emergent patterns. And yeah, that's real different than, than what the other, other organizational sciences or management systems have been doing. I don't think it's really been done before. And so let's say I'm, um, I'm you know, Netflix or Twitter or I'm a much smaller startup and I'm, I'm growing. What are some of the biggest changes 
I would, you know, let's say I, I then spent the day, you know, reading all your work, doing a, a lengthy session with you, you know, listening to this podcast. What would, uh, what are some of the biggest changes I, I could make, you know, pretty, pretty immediately? That would be game changing. Um, that's a good question. You know, I have to project on what I think Twitter is doing or Netflix. You know, certainly what we were talking about earlier, avoid this escalating complexity. But I think, you know, uh, this is this is the kind of thing that when the agile movement first started to understand itself was making explicit, you know, like small pe- small teams where people are acting like humans are very efficient, powerful sense-making and problem-solving things. Now, I I suspect that Twitter and Netflix already know some of that. One of the problems that Twitter and Netflix have, though, is no matter how uh, agile, let's say, just use that as a broad term, they want to be, they're inside the economy, which is not agile at all. That's a real, something that we really have to be, remind ourselves of, that, that, uh, some of the financial and governmental restraints, constraints on businesses, you know, compels them to take a certain shape also, especially once they get to be a certain size. Um, I don't know. I don't, I really don't know what it looks like inside. So we're talking about what it's like to work inside there. Oh, and, and Twitter, we can use any, any, any company, you know, Google, Facebook, just any, any sort of, when you say that your last line earlier was, um, it's different from some of it hasn't been tried yet. It's different from the way we operate today. Let's- yeah. Okay. So I get it now. So for example, um, there's a lot of complaint about, uh, so a lot of agile companies are allergic to hierarchies or any kind of power asymmetry. And this says, well, your system's going to be dead. If you don't have power asymmetries, it doesn't come because it doesn't come from people being bad or they want to grab power it's a systems property of dynamic systems. The question is, given that you're going to have power asymmetries over time because you want low action thresholds and you have a lot of trust, then what are you going to do? What's the third term? How are you going to redress them, right? Or given, it could be the opposite. In a lot of uh, Scandinavian, not Scandinavian, but a lot of European countries, they have very high action thresholds. People can't do anything. The decision paths are huge. Well, why? Well, you'll find that there's a lot of trust in the, well, there's a lot of perceived trust or confidence in those because, there, you know, there's a lot of law. But then you realize that it's actually a low trust environment. That's why they have to have all the regulations. So you can say, how can we create a high trust environment without the regular regulations so we can lower the action thresholds, you know, so any situation you're in, you're either like, you know, stuck up or down or in our country, all we do, all we do is lower action thresholds with economic decisions. We don't reestablish trust and we never redress power asymmetry. We have, we're monological in the human domain, right? It's all we ever do is lower action thresholds. So this is a formula for, um, you know, either fragmentation or stagnation. And so the, the question is, how do we keep all these phases running? And they're not going to be just even Steven all the time, but how do we keep the engine? You know, it's like a three cycle engine now, you know, you got to get, have all the cylinders always going up and down and up and down. So 
yeah, as far as I can see in our country, we're, you know, we're, we're eroding trust and um, we're not redressing power asymmetries. And the reason why we have so many power asymmetries is because since the 80s or seven, 1976, uh, we've just lowered action thresholds. Every single time we get stuck, we just lower the action thresholds. We don't increase um, trust and we don't redress the power asymmetries. So the different countries have, have a kind of different, different emphasis on, on what they're amplifying and what, what they're doing well and uh, what they're ignoring and what they're not doing very well. You know, the uh, curious how you react to this. There was a debate on Twitter. I was uh, uh, I was witnessing a few weeks ago where basically people were talking about how financial capital is positive sum. You know, I, I make some, you know yeah. some of it take anything away from you, whereas uh, social capital they thought was was either neg- uh, negative sum or less positive sum in the mm-hmm. sense that attention is finite and uh, you know it's, they've been social capital in the sense of status, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you're number one, that means I'm not number one. Where, but someone tried to come in and sort of redefine social capital to mean trust and, that, and say that trust is, is positive sum if we, I don't, I don't know, if we build better institutions or better systems or, or maybe better values mm-hmm. or practices. What do you think about sort of social capital, its positive sum nature, how that relates to trust as you, you were just defining it or yeah. what does that bring up for you? So I think that human systems are complex systems which means they have to have complex feed loops. So sometimes they're positively correlated, sometimes they're negatively correlated, just as I described the brain. If you're trying to build a system or a model of human systems and they don't have complex feed loops, then then you might as well throw away your, your idea. It has to be at least as complex as the human brain or a worm, you know, a rat's brain works the same way. So complex feed loops means under certain thresholds, things amplify each other and certain thresholds, they dampen each other. And these thresholds meet, this is why it's nonlinear because things are neither positively or just negatively correlated. They're correlated in complex ways in which, and, and, the pattern that emerges emerges from a set of uh, microstates reaching some microstate reaches a threshold event and and it doesn't stay there because then there's the other pumps are working also so neither of those are interesting propositions because they're not complex enough the dynamics in the state proposition are not complex enough yeah and what would be a better way you need to have a model of, um, so you said uh, financial um, capital has, is positive sum or negative sum. And I'm saying, no, finance markets are, are have to be a complex system such that at certain times they're positive sums, sometimes they're negative sums, sometimes they're intermediate sums. And, the, and what pushes them toward one or the other is not just a single correlation because a complex system has complex feed loops, not just pause amplifying and dampening, you know, that's cybernetics. Cybernetics is this amplifies this, so then I have to regulate, so it dampens this. And then, so all of these are single dynamics. In a complex system, the complex feed loops means 
the same thing will sometimes amplify and sometimes dampen depending upon what else is in the system. And that's what makes it nonlinear. That, and, and, and so if people are asking themselves a question, then the answer they have is not interesting or adequate if it doesn't display this very complex uh, dynamic that's neither positively or negatively correlated. It's correlated. Um, the, the relationships are much more complex than that. Yeah. There's a few topics I want to get into in the next 20 minutes or so. Uh, one is identity. One is uh, pedagogy. One is, is game B. Maybe we uh, start with pedagogy or maybe close loop here in terms of, you know, you talked about how we'd like to have more insight-driven pedagogy. People who have the power to influence how schools are designed we're, we're, we're listening to this right now. What are, again, uh, I guess another variation of the organization question, what are some practical things that, that you'd like to see or radical things that you'd like to see different about the way schools or education institutions are designed? Yeah, I mean, I could say a practical thing. I, I'm actually working with uh, Montessori schools in D.C. on creating something we call Sense Collab. And what it is, it's using SenseMaker technology. Um, like right now, we're using Cognitive Edge's SenseMaker, and having the students learn sense-making technology to see meta patterns behind meaning making, to see that stories not only—I mean, the way media and surveys usually uh, survey is that you see polarization and you see majority and minority, which is also a polarization. But with sense-making scan, what you see are stories and then the stories that bridge. You can always see that the human system bridges itself along certain meaning-making or sense-making patterns. So the students are learning this and it's called a collab because then they're designing instruments to survey other schools and to survey uh, citizen, they become like what's called citizen journalists within their own community. So instead of using uh, technology, you know, I call it right now, our children are downstream from the algorithms. The algorithms are changing their way their brains work. So we're going to teach them how to create uh, with technology such a ways that they go and independently discover and explore um, their world and how they themselves and sense maker and other people make sense and to do iterative design in that so that then when they do their first scans and they get the information and patterns back, then different patterns will provoke them to ask new questions and literally advance themselves into the future, you know, from the inside out. This way of working creates uh, reflective capacity in children. It makes them ask questions about their own beliefs and systems. Uh, we are using scans that ask questions about their self-other awareness and these other metacognitive skills. So this is a pilot program. Um, it deserves to be well-funded and expanded across the country. Um, so if any of your listeners are interested, uh, we've got our first pilot all set up to go. It's a very exciting program. I'm working with uh, Andrew at the, at the Oneness School in, this, in, in outside of Bethesda, Maryland, and Chevy Chase. 
And um, we know from cognitive research that children have metacognitive skills earlier on uh, in childhood than we thought before. And we basically teach that out of them. And then as 30-year-olds or 40-year-olds, we try to train them at these higher levels. You know, it's like we want people, we want people in the workplace to be collaborative, right? And we want them to ask new kinds of questions and explore options, right? But all through schooling, we tell them there's one right answer. And if you work on it with somebody, it's called cheating. It doesn't make any sense. It's another one of these crazy, the rat's eating its own tail. Like we set up 30 years of education. So we obstruct that from the human system. And then we throw up our hands and wonder why we don't have collaborative, innovative economies. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, the whole thing is literally insane. So we're trying to do a small, you know, we're trying to make a, a one small step that we hope can become a giant leap for all mankind. I mean, I'm being kind of silly here, but um, we're very excited about this. Um, yeah. So that's one little initiative. There's other things going on, I'm sure, that I don't know, uh, uh, that I'm not aware of. Totally. The, let, let's talk a little bit about where we started the conversation, which is identity. I'm curious if you can talk about some of the malware we have about how we think about identity and some, some examples maybe sort of, you know we've had this concept of sort of the one true self and you just listen to your authentic self and then mm-hmm. out comes you know the yeah. your answer that, that's sort of one you know, maybe somewhat obvious example another example is how we as a culture think about or i guess the projection of sort of identity politics or sort of what's quote-unquote prob- problematic right maybe literally problematic about some of that maybe just some of the malware around identity external relationship to identity and maybe what an alternative might look Yeah, so um, I can give you my thoughts on it. Uh, Identity, the identity politics and identity itself also should, we we should have a campaign to study it more. And um, for example, I've modeled out a sense-making scan on identity where people have to rate, for example, is my race, how important is my racial identity to me, right? And so so my racial identity, let's say white, how important is that to me from extremely important to not important? And then how, what kind of impact does my racial identity have me from extremely advantaged, advantageous to extremely disadvantaged? We, I would like to know what the correlation between people's perceived identity around categories and their perceived advantageous or disadvantageous. I think we will be shocked to see how those results fall. So because I can't answer that question, I I think that's a very easy um, um, survey to do or scan. And I think that, that the, some research or institutions should do that at very large scale across many different countries. Um, so that's number one. And number two is that when we look at identity, we can't look at identity, and I'm, I'm, and I'm thinking now of your interview with Zach Stein, we can't look at identity without understanding the metapsychology of it, which is how does identity Uh, What role does identity play in the human psyche? Once you understand that, you see that it's not like 
you start to understand that if you and I have different identities, like let's say we're fighting over male, female identity, you know, whatever, classic postmodern thing. If an outsider could show us that the function of that psychological structure is the same for both of us, then we see it's not the content that's important. It's the role the psychological uh, structure is playing, and then you work at it uh, on it as that. So now I see that actually we're enacting the same psychological need, the content of which is just opposite. It doesn't so so that doesn't make you better or worse than me. We're in the same spot with a different, you know, you have the measles and I have the mumps. We're both sick, right? So this is true for all these polarities, all these psychological structures are they look like clashes if you look at the content. They're actually the similar psychological dynamics if you look at the process dynamics from which they emerge. And that's the level that we need to, to uh, investigate them at. And so how do we get past this? Slash, do you see, <laughs> are, are you optimistic that we, that we even can? For me, it, it's, it's just a sad kind of a unfortunate use of energy. And then again, um, if you're working as I do with students, and I say that, and, and they're stuck in identity politics, it, it doesn't take long to dissect or deconstruct what's actually happening, what their actual needs are, and if they're willing to, to look at it. So, but to, you know, to do that on a large scale without actual pedagogy or teachers or coaches or spiritual friends, you know, so many teachers and uh, leaders are involved in identity politics or involved in polarization. I mean, you can't count on the leaders to help with that. They're, they're, you know, we don't need to name names. They're, 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 they're caught up in it themselves. The last thing about identity, I'm only vaguely familiar with, but I haven't gotten deep into it. Like, is it Martin Buber's uh, I Thou? Mm-hmm. Are, are you are you deeply familiar or familiar enough to explain what the major contribution of, of, of that is relative to how we think about the self? Yeah, I'm going to expand it. You know, so I now I also also want to do us and we. Um, so we working with pronouns is really is really a cool way to work through some of these things. The I thou relationship is an acknowledgement that there's an I on the other side of the equation you know, as opposed to as an it. I mean, most uh, me, you. Um, okay, now this this is the can of worms. So I'll back. So let's just work with the pronouns. So there's I and me. George Herbert Mead, an American pragmatist, did, does a really good job at talking about this. The me is who I am in pub for as an object for others. And most people today, all people who are sucked into identity projects, they lead with their me, who I am in the eyes of the other. So the me is the object that arises in the eyes of the other. And when you lead with your me, you're always trying to shape shift the me in response to the perceived reaction of the other. 
It basically objectifies your, you as an object for others. The I is what is arising spontaneously and authentically in, my, in myself. For example, if I'm talking to you, and as I'm talking to you, I've got two, another script running. I mean, we can do this. The script is, should I use, just before I say a word, I, should I use this word? And I'm going to make sure that it's the word I want to use for you because basically the I is not speaking. The I is strategizing a me that should enter public space, right? So as opposed to just talking, expressing what comes up, that's leading with the I. Um, now, identity politics, people don't have an I. They lead with their me. They're construct they're in the world of objects for others uh, psychologically this is problematic they also interject that to themselves such that they are an object for judgment for themselves which is why fashion and instagram and the social media is so important to them even in their own apperception of themselves so this is kind of a malware loop that we're in. So just getting people back down to the I, which is a sense of sovereignty, you've heard that word, is part of this. So then you have Boober's I, thou. I mean, this is how far we've come. We just need an I first. Right? So Boober, poor Boober, he's probably happy he's not alive because now the I, thou is leading with your I and not making an it out of the other that there's another I on the other side, not an it for you to evaluate or judge or prejudge, which is prejudice, or uh, even taking a snapshot. I mean, we do a lot of these things in trivial ways, but it's like at work where something's funny and then we give someone a nickname and then they're snapshotted in as that kind of archetype, you know? That's treating that person as an it, an it right? So. Can we make the dynamic presencing of everybody's eye in real time? This would be, we would enact very novel, spontaneous um, psyches because that's the healthy psyche. So that's the I vow. And then there's us and we. So a we, so just like we're almost all me's and no I's, we're almost all us and no we's. So an us is also a static identity like a us versus them. It's a category. It's not a dynamic structure. So um, us Americans or us white people or us uh, women, it's just a category, whereas a we is a unit of agency. So a sports team is a we. If you're on the field together, you're a we because you need all those players to do the sport, right? So a uh, we is a unit of agency. And so you, we, we are a we right now because we are making this interview. And so what we want are more eyes and thous and we's and less exclusionary me's and us and it's. But it is interesting because the sort of ethos today, or at least the expressed ethos is all about inclusion, right? Yes, but it's categorical inclusion. It's generalized me's, categorized us's. They're abstractions. 
They're not units of agency or authentic dynamics. They're right. things, not processes. They're dead, not alive, basically. Right. Uh, so you're into a different kind of, you know, a more dynamic inclusivity. To what extent do you think it's important to be exclusive or exclusionary uh, relative to how other people might be inclu inclusive? Or, or what is the role? Yeah, I'm not into inclusivity because uh, you can't have inclusivity without exclusivity. I'm, you, you know, this and this goes a long way to where I was just talking the other day with a uh, workshop here and, and how organizations see themselves as somehow bounded from the society. You know, early on, you know, it's like a picnic is an organization, right? You go to a picnic, you become a we, we had a picnic. You don't exit society to become a we at a picnic. But organizations are so inclusive, exclusive that when you work, you know, Tesla makes cars, we don't make cars, you know, and then the, the, the organization becomes so exclusive to the society exists in, it starts to defend itself from the society exists in and starts to externalize costs to the society exists, it exists in as if it is a bounded entity that can separate itself from society. It doesn't make any sense, but that's the mental model we have, right? So if we say organizations exteriorize costs. Well, exteriorize them to what? Something exterior to them? You know, they shit in their own water. They don't shit in someone else's water. So this is the problem with these mental models of inclusivity and exclusivity. They're, 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 they're amount, they don't make sense. Organization can't exteriorize costs. To what? To Mars, maybe. You know, like it doesn't make any sense. But we say these things, uh, we take them for granted because we're so, the, the, we have these terms it's something I, I named earlier, the, the mental structure of consciousness, the category, set, uh, set category thinking. And you can't use that for complex systems because they're open and they don't end and begin and end anywhere. So the whole, when you really ask me about identity politics and stuff, the whole thing doesn't make sense to me. The whole thing is malware. However, the fact that we are running malware means we have psych real psychological structures that cause real suffering and real pain. So at that level, you know, that has to be attended to. But the, the conversation itself or the, the the notion of it is just is just like, you know, just like running some kind of really bad understanding of uh it's kind of like thinking that you make a tree, uh, a plant grow by pulling on it. Yeah. It's just, it just doesn't make sense. How, let's talk about malware for a second. How, how do you think about the difference between malware that we are born with, so to speak, or I don't know, that's just part of evolution or something, or, or versus the malware that is, uh, you know, culturally, you know, created or a product of our of our times. Doing most of the malware is in the latter, or, or, or how, how do you think about that? Well, I think they're interpenetrating, you know, like I call it tumbling over, you know, from one perspective, one's inside the other. And, um, but we, what, the distinction that is important is that, um, prim, you know, a ch childhood thinking is not malware. 
it's it's not adequate to really really difficult tasks let's say but it's adequate to the context in the world that is living in now if you take child simplistic childhood thinking and you try to apply that to a domain that's that is much more challenging or sophisticated then it can look like malware um, so that's that's part of it but then there's kind of like true conditioning that's intentionally programmed for the benefit of the person who can program or intentionally disinforming people because that gives you an, a competitive advantage. That's just like in Cro-Magnum era, era, just being the stronger bully. So you can punch the other person out, you know, so except it scales more. So you can have hundreds of thousands of people uh, misinformed for your benefit. So I think there's, when I talk about the mental structure of consciousness, it's, it's not in itself malware. It's just inadequate to where we're going as a species and the problems that matter most to us. It needs to be upgraded. And then there's different, those other, other definitions of malware. What do you say to the view that someone says, is some, uh, someone says, Hey, our instincts or intuitions were sort of you know, quote unquote designed uh, to help us, you know, survive and reproduce in a you know an environment that sort of was a long time ago. And there's a lot of overlap with how that is, is today, but there's also some differences. Like you know, road rage doesn't make much sense, or or you know, sort of thirst for sugar. Or, I don't. Know, there's some things that even on the basis of survival and reproduction don't make sense uh, in, in today's environment. Uh, but then also. Uh, there, you know, that doesn't necessarily what what keeps us surviving and, and reproducing doesn't necessarily make us happy or fulfilled, and we need to so be be mindful of of where there are differences there. I mean, besides sort of the the poorness of that phrasing, <clears throat> I think the general idea is resonates or or far too reductive or or just inaccurate. Or how do you react to that? I think it's kind of simplistic thinking. So, you know, there's been many, many studies, for example, that show we don't decide by doing rational analysis. We do a lot of rational analysis um, to constellate options and stuff like that. But when we finally decide, it's, it's more embodied mechanisms. You know, Damasio called it the strange order of things as he, you know, is a cognitive neuroscientist and he, and he had to admit that we use our lower embodied evolved system to make decisions to work out complexity and so thank god we still have those systems and i think part of our problem today is that we have atrophied our uh, evolved like perceptual system you know somebody that works in a pig factory that is industrial farming you don't have to be a genius to know it's not healthy. You know, you, you, if you have your own few chickens, you don't have to put your eggs in the freezer, in the refrigerator. The reason why we put our eggs in the refrigerator is because they're filthy and they're infected. And you don't have to be a genius to know this, but we just literally don't see anymore. We just don't see it. We don't see how sad people are. We don't see how lonely people are. We don't see how lonely we are. We literally do not perceive 
the raw reality of our existence. Is, is it one more line about why we don't or, or why we can't? Or? I don't know. I was at a workshop in the Bay Area and it was a little different for me because, you know, we did some reflective practices, which usually here means you look like you're meditating. And people got out their laptops <laughs> and they were seamless with the type. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So and then I can't remember we had a question and answering and someone said, you know, uh, when I do this and this and this and this and it makes me depressed and then I like feel off on that. And so, so what should I do? And I said, stop. And I wasn't being facetious. It wasn't like stop eat. You know, it was something like something they do on social media. And I said, stop. And they're looking at me and I'm like, it's not any more complex than that. Like, what do you want me to do? Make it more complex. It's not more complex than that. This is funny. When I, when I, I sort of, I have this inside joke to myself that is when I look at all the things that bring me, have brought me misery over the years, like 90, 95% of them are things that I actively did. They're like acts of like commission versus acts of omission. Like I just stopped talking, stopped doing things. <laughs> My life would be way better. Right. And of course they'll get to the point. Why can't I stop? And I'm not saying that's easy, but at least now you're asking a real question and you can get to a real answer and solve the problem. But, you know, what's the temptation is, oh, well, let's do more social media, make change the algorithm, do something, regardless of the fact that it's even proven now that yeah. there's inherent problems with it. So, you know, I'm not trying to be facetious. I know it's not easy, but the solutions are not by asking a question of what more do we need to think about it. It's why can't we stop? No, we already know enough. Why can't we stop? And and what you're saying is just as important as the stop is is redirect. Yes. Yeah. The stopping gives you, opens the space for you to explore alternatives. And at first they don't come. And so at first, not only are you kind of uh, suffering because you're not filling your time the way you used to, but you also don't have anything to put in its place. So that is a little, that's the, you know, training wheel period. It's difficult work, but once and it doesn't take forever, it takes the time it takes. And then the human system comes back online. The organism will serve up alternatives for you and you're on your way. So you just need to survive that part where you've stopped you would still like you know you still have the impulse to do it and nothing else comes online for you um but it they do it does the, the system is not broken so the human system and is it one you know, sort of simplistic instantiation of of, of and i say simplistic and maybe positive way of like yeah if you're compelled to you know be put, getting in twitter wars with uh with people maybe journal instead or something, or, or if you're, you know, chasing likes on Instagram, maybe it's like, go take up photography or go draw or something. like, is it just channel that energy and things that are less likely to create sort of unsustainable status dynamics or. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're doing that and you're not unhappy with it, but the question is, you know, how is it arising and, you know, why is it that you want to stop? 
if you want to stop because it's an idea and your friends think have all stopped, well, that's not good either. It's like, why, you know, what is it that the root of why you're asking yourself this or not? And the other thing is, is to be honest, you might be kind of frustrated that you're in Twitter wars, but if you're honest with yourself, you see, ah, I actually don't want to stop. I just, you know, and how do we sense into where are we actually feeling about Twitter? Well, then, of course, this is a feeling thing. This is what we've evolved to be able to feel what we're feeling, but uh, this is not something we're good at anymore. These are these lower capacities that have evolved that aren't don't, you know, supposedly don't help us in modern day life. I, I want to close by maybe just closing on on sort of how we sort of see the the game B phenomenon happening and, and where you sort of see yourself in relation to some of these thinkers that we were talking about earlier, Jordan Hall, uh, Danish Meyerberger, et cetera, uh, Charles. The um because for me it, it just sort of came in my radar very early. In fact, I've had this idea for sort of like a stock market for ideas and not stock market in the sense of like financial currency mm-hmm. or, or just made up basically just a way to track the popularity of ideas over time and see things that are emerging. Oh, cool. <laughs> and, yeah. And I think, you know, if that existed and I, I might build it, uh, I think game B would be, um, you know, an exciting idea I would hold or, or, or say, Oh, this watch this space. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's gaining a lot of steam. I'm curious how you, you know, I joined the last podcast. He said, as soon as it becomes a movement, it's failed. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm curious how you see sort of the. What I think is interesting about Game B, somebody asked it in a different way. I, I kind of like the answer I gave. And that is um, Game B is a hedge. Right? It's a hedge against Game A. So uh, it's like Caleb's concept of the, the not, might, might be the Black Swan event or something. It's a something event. It's like it won't, Game B won't flourish unless game a starts to dismantle itself to a certain level right it's kind of like those cones those trees in these forests that burn they never actually seed themselves they can't compete until the forest burns down and then the then the seeds get a little charred and then they out outperform the others right so game b is like that so people who are interested in it should not feel despair because it's a sleeper cell. And it's just the opposite. We should feel uh, enthusiastic because it is gaining some steam, even against the odds, even in the age of, of game A. So um, the other thing to think about it is the more we despair that civilization is going to collapse or the paradigm is going to collapse, that means the more promising outcome for gain B. So the question is whether there's enough uh, capacity when game A um, starts to crumble for real or for good uh, for something like game B to thrive. So um, just understand it, it's a hedge against game A. It's not just something on its own. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of like a hedge against game A. Yeah. And, and so I'm curious how you think about the role of, of leaders in, in something like a, a game B. And then I'm also curious what happened, you know, game B right now, the Facebook page is, is 300 members. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if in a year from now, it's like 30,000. What happens when something like that becomes or 
and then even there was a post today of like, hey, is something going to get lost? Or obviously something's going to, like, is it going to be over when it, like, how do you just think about the dynamics of, of scale and growth? That's interesting. 30,000 game beers. There's probably 30,000 game beers in the world that don't know themselves into that name. Probably more. I think that, you know, game B has to operate again under different principles. It's probably right now um, still uh, its capacity has to be built by emergence. We, nobody knows what it is, what we're doing. So it became 30,000 because somebody had a successful meme or a successful way to promote it, it would probably not be game B anymore. And then you'd have to have a game C, you know, these things keep going underground. Like Inception, once you get outed in the one level of the dream, you have to go into a deeper dream. So once you get outed in game B, you have to go into game C. And then, you know, you don't know how deep you have to go. Um, So there's a little bit, I think that's maybe what Jordan Hall meant about once it's a movement, it's dead. But yeah, I think there's 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 a lot that is actually in the same dynamic that doesn't go uh, by the name of Game B, and it's not in that Facebook page. So um, anything that's a hedge against Game A is or emergent emergent capacity that is uh, applicable to, to a future that's not yet here is uh is part of that and i don't know if you could capture it at this point but i think yeah. it's bigger than you think like yeah. like you were saying suspecting totally is there any sort of interesting disagreements uh, or noteworthy i should say difference of opinion you have you have with jordan or daniel so there's different styles but i think we're all um in the it's it's just like uh Dave Snowden and I, we work together. Um, we have different flavors, but I think we're in the same domain. So I, I would say um, that's true of uh, Daniel and Jordan and Zach. And I, one of the things that I think is cool about our, our if we are a domain or a field or a, a coherent ecology, you know, that's a big gift. Are we a coherent ecology? is that uh, we all see it as really important to have our unique perspectives, have our unique hunches, our our own kind of scent on the path. Um, But we all, I think, understand that we hold a piece, but it is not the whole, right? Um, So that keeps us running more parallel and maybe less intersections. But here's the coolest thing. The biggest reason why we know we might be a coherent ecology is because of people like you. Somehow here we are uh, starting to show up in the same space. And so I think audience itself knows more about what might be there than perhaps perhaps we do. We don't really have an outside-in perspective on ourselves. I think that's a, a perfect place to, to wrap. Uh, my guest today has been... Uh, Benito Roy. Bonnie, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. For listeners who, who want to go deeper, I would encourage you to to read all of her, her writing. She has a, also ch- check out the various podcasts she's done on Rebel Wisdom, Emerge, and, and others, um, and, and has a YouTube channel as well. Anywhere else, Bonnie, you'd like to point the audience? No, I think, you know, we've got Google. You can find me. <laughs> awesome. Uh, thank you so much for this, Bonnie. This, this is great. Right. Thank you so much. It was a great, a great pleasure. 
If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 